Colossians chapter 1. Let's open up to Colossians chapter 1 and look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. Uh, if you would, well, we've already done it twice, but we're going to do it one more time. Let's stand and we're going to read uh, starting at verse 15 to verse 20. We read, we stand as we read uh, the word of God. And after we read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. Starting verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, and on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is the before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for today that you have given us an ability to be able to come together and worship together and be in your your house. And I pray, Lord... That as we have come together around your word, that you would bless this time. Holy Spirit, come now and lead us all into truth. Um, Your word is truth, and we are absolutely and utterly dependent upon you, Holy Spirit, to come and and teach us uh, this morning. Including me, I'm not the teacher, you are. And so I pray that all of us, including myself, would be led into truth. All the things that are good and true and helpful this morning, God, I pray that you help me say those things and all the things that are not You would keep me from saying those things. Um, Focus our hearts and our minds solely on Christ and who he is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said last week, uh, we're doing the Christ hymn. Uh, I did the first half last week and I'm doing the second half of it this week. And whenever you look at the Christ hymn or some texts in the Bible, uh, there's not a whole lot of application. And so today, it'll be just like last week where the main point of what we're looking at today is to focus you in on Jesus and who he is of this sermon and last week's sermon. The point of it is for you to be, your mind and your heart to be centered in on Christ and who he is and that you just find yourself in awe. You just look at Jesus and you say, wow, this is amazing. And that as, as I concluded last week, that we all try to learn the, the message of adoration, the language of adoration. The goal of today is for you to Learn to, as, as much as we can with finite language, try to put into words um, adoration for who he is. And so uh, last week when we were looking at the Christ hymn, I showed that the verse 15 through 20, which is the, the whole text on who Christ is, the first half um, is about Christ's overall creation. And then th- the second half, which we're looking at today, is Christ as the Lord over the church. And so Uh, Last week, this was kind of how it looked last week. So Christ is the mediator over all creation. And so there was several things that that highlighted the fact that he's the mediator over all creation. Remember, 15 through 17 showing how Christ is over all creation. 18 through 20 is showing how he is the Lord of the church. So it zooms in from creation to church is what we're going to look at today. There in the text, you could easily be able to guess what they are if you just because we just read it. But since he's the mediator of all creation, the first thing that we saw is that he's the image of the invisible God. The next thing that we saw is that he's supreme over all creation. 
The next thing that we saw is that he created all things. Remember, the Colossian heresy had Christ as, you know, like, if this is God and there's emanations that come from God, then those things are kind of lesser gods. And even further down the chain from the, from the emanations, whoever that thing is, that must have been the creator. And Paul's like, no, actually, Jesus is God and he is the creator. And so we wanted to make sure we understood that because if this lesser God down the chain was the creator, then when he created, he created matter, and matter can be evil, and it's fine for matter to be evil, but it's not. We know from Genesis chapter 1 that God created, and it was good, and we're to enjoy his creation um, without sin. So Jesus created all things. We also saw next that Jesus created all things for himself, and so that includes me and you. That we were created for him and for his glory. We also saw that Jesus is eternal. Uh, that's number E, or letter E. Jesus is eternal. That he has perfect um, communion within the Trinity forever. And then lastly, we saw that Jesus sustains all things. That means he holds all things together. And so that shows us him over all creation. Now Paul is going to take a turn here in verse 18. Uh, and you can see it right there in verse 18. And he is the head of the body. The church. So he's moving from all of creation into the church now. And so the second Roman numeral is, you can go ahead and go to the second room, is Christ is the Lord over God's church. Christ is the Lord over God's church. And that brings us into this particular text that we're 18 through 20 that we're looking at today. And we're going to talk about what it means for Christ to be the Lord over God's church. Uh, O'Brien says, the Christ hymn moves from a cosmological perspective to a soteriological perspective. Soteriological is just a fancy word for salvation. So he's talking about how God and what he's done in all the cosmos. And now he's talking about this is what Christ has done to save his church. And that's what we're going to look at today in verses 18 through 20. Garland says the second strophe or part, verses 18 through 20 of the Christ hymn, brings the cosmic Christ down to earth where blood flows from a body strung up on a cross. And so he is the head of the body, the church. That brings us to point number A, or the next one. Christ is the head of the body, the church. Now, this is the Christ hymn, meaning what Paul is wanting us to uh, highlight, focus in on, is Jesus and not the church. Now, I'm going to talk about the church in just a second. But that's not the main point of the Christ hymn that we discuss the church. The main point of the Christ hymn is that we discuss Christ, which we will do. Uh, Lots of sermons on the church. I wish I could talk about it. And I can't help myself, and I still will a little bit. Uh, But the main point that Paul wants us to see here is Jesus is the head of the body. Footnote the church. Let's not talk about the church. Let's talk about the head of the body. And so that's what we'll do. Calvin says, the life of the church flows out from Christ. So the church, of course, is the people. Our life that we have, all of the fact that we actually have life together as a church body actually flows from Christ. He's the head, and the life that we actually have flows from him. And so we want to talk about him as the life giver. Paul's design in showing this, that he's the head of the body, that Christ is the head over the church. So if we say that we're a part of the church, which means he's the head, we have to fully submit our lives to the head. So the head calls the shots. Paul wants us to see that Christ is cosmically supreme over all salvation history and that Jesus is the Lord over the entire church. So let's understand this in a couple parts. First, 
Christ as the head and source. That's what he wants us to, that's the, the main part of, the, of this Christ hymn is that he's the head and he's the source. And then I'll talk about the church being the body. But first, Christ as head. Christ as head. That's what he wants us to see. Jesus is the head of the body. Now, when you think of Christ being the head of the body, this is in the Greek, kephale, the head. Uh, we need to think of it in two, two ways. Um, he's the head, as in he's the source, and he's the head, as in he's the authority. He's the authority. So if someone is the head of a company, then they're the authority of the company. They call the shots. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the company gets all of their being from, from the head. But that's, that's how we're supposed to think of him. He's not just the head like the head of the company. But we also think he's the head or the source in that the company, the church, literally gets its being from him. So here's what I mean. Christ as the head means, as Garland said, Christ as head means that the destinies of creation and the church are bound together if he's the head. And Paul is emphasizing in this particular text that Christ, not the church, um, is the head. So Paul shows that the church then, therefore, is totally dependent upon Christ. So if Christ is the head, it means that Jesus is to always be understood as the, the authority over the entire church. In the sense that um, he is uh, calling the shots. He is the one that's supremely in charge of the church always. Uh, this means that the church is inseparably tied to the living Christ. He's the one who's over us. And he's the one that we're to follow and, and um, know what we're supposed to do. J. Mack says it this way, John MacArthur. Jesus controls every part of the body and gives the church life and direction. He controls every part of the body and gives it life and direction. Meaning this, he literally energizes the body, straights the church's work. He gives us life. And when he gives us life, he orchestrates the church's work completely by gifting every single person in the church. And so since he gives us life, and when he gives us life, he orchestrates us. And he does this by giving us all of our different gifts. And when he gives us all of our different gifts, those gifts are given to us so that we can literally serve and support each other for our entire lives. The way that you do this is by serving and supporting each other because he's gifted you. And now we're energized because he's gifted you. And so we care for each other day in, day out. We love each other day in, day out. If someone has a need, we, we make sure we find out what it is. And we, and we meet that need because Christ has gifted you because he's the head and we're the body. And he's orchestrating all of this. And he's done it not just so that we would care for each other, but also that because he wants us to reach the world around us. And so anytime we're ever doing anything as a church body, like we're functioning and operating by caring for each other and reaching the world, it's because God has gifted us to be able to do that. And that's his supreme plan is that we would do that. And so he is... Um, he's the head, he's the authority making all that happen, but he's also the source. So in a company, if somebody's the head, they don't actually give the people that work for that body life, uh, but we're not a company, we're a church. So he's the head as in he's also calling the shots, but in an actual body, if, if we just remove the head, you have, you have this weird thing where you have a, a body just walking around, the body dies. So he's not just the head as in he's the one who's who's calling the shots, but he's also the source. The head has to be attached to the body in order for the body to be able to work. So he's literally the source of the church. He's 
He's the one that calls the shots, but he's also the one that gives life to us, that literally animates us and keeps us alive. He's the source and the authority. So being the source as the head, that's where Calvin says, literally, the life of the church flows out from Christ. So the reason why we're alive is because we, the body, are attached to the head. He's the source and the authority. He's both when he's the head. So there's implications for this then. What are some of the implications? And I'm just going to show you what the implications are straight from the Bible. So it calls Christ the head here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. But it also calls him the head or refers to him as the head in a couple other places. So one is Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. So if you look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, it says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by, with a sensuous mind. Again, the Colossians believed that uh, since all matters evil, the more that you don't take part in any kind of matter, uh, any kind of evil creations, then God's so pleased with you because you're staying away from evil. And the way that the Colossians were saying you should do that is by, in, in, I'm going to insist on being ascetic. I'm going to not eat. And since God sees I don't eat, he's super happy with me. Or I'm going to go on uh, detail about angels, or I'm going to go in detail about having lots of visions, or I'm going to be puffed up without reason, a sensuous mind. And if I'm doing all that, then I'm not, here it is, not holding fast to the head. I'm not holding fast to Christ. Instead, I'm holding fast to my ability to do these other things. That's why they would say Christ is necessary but not sufficient. And Paul's like, no, he's necessary and sufficient. All you need is Christ to have a right relationship with God. You don't have to do all these other things, too, to have a right relationship with God. Visions aren't necessary to have a right relationship with God. Asceticism, not necessary to have a right relationship with God. All you need is Christ. And so by doing that, he says... Holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So implication, since Christ is the source, since Christ is the authority, we as the body, we hold fast to the head. That's what we're supposed to do. You can see it right there in verse, chapter 2, verse 19. Hold fast to the head. He also says something similar in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, speaking truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So if we talk about Christ being the head and us being the body, the implication then, therefore, is for us as the body to hold fast to Christ. To hold fast to the head or to hold fast to Christ. This means that we strive Always, as believers in Christ, to hold fast to him. We strive. We hold fast. We, we look to Christ and we always strive so that he clearly tells us that any kind of striving or any kind of hold fasting that we have, holding fast that we have, doesn't give us glory at all. Instead, it gives him the glory. And so we struggle always striving to hold fast. Now, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 29 helps us understand where we get this energy to hold fast. If you look at Colossians 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So anytime you strive to hold fast to the head, anytime you strive to hold on to Christ or to live as Christ wants you to, it's because you're struggling with his energy, not your own. And so we don't get any glory for this at all. He gets all the glory because we know that even in Colossians 2, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, 
it says that he's the one that causes us to will and work. Uh, so everything that's happening in our life when, in regard to sanctification is happening because we as the body are holding fast to the head. And the only reason we're holding fast to the head is because he's given us the energy to do it. Hey, could you do me a favor? Could you make the house lights a little bit brighter? I feel like I can't see y'all. There we go. Now I can see you. Um, now we can see each other. And if you're tired, it's all gone. Um, so anyway, um, whenever we see this as Christ is the head, uh, the main thing that we should take from it is if Christ is the head and I'm part of the body, we, we are the, I'm going to talk about this in a second. We're the body. And what's key that's told to us in the Bible is that we're to hold fast to him. So if you're wondering, what does it mean for Christ to be the head? What does that mean for me? If Christ is the head, it means this, hold fast to him. Strive, struggle with everything you can to become more and more like him. He's your only source. He's your authority. Like if he says to do something, do it. And the only way that you can do it is by holding fast to him because he's also your absolute source of life. There is no other hope we have other than Jesus. As I read in Psalm 146.3, Jesus is our only king. Jesus is our only way we're going to get saved. Nothing else matters, really. All right, so when we look at this, Jesus is the head of the body. I wanted to make all the focus about Jesus being the head of the body, but I can't help but also talk about the church. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to have three quick applications about the church. Uh, it's this. There's so much that could be said. The point of the text is about Jesus. But let me just make three obvious points, I think, about the church. Being in a church is not an option. Being in a church is not an option. If you're a Christian, you're the church, which means you are connected to Christ the head, so you must be connected to a body. There's no such thing as a body not being connected to the head. If you're a Christian, then you have to be in a church. It's not an option. You're not the body. You're a body part. And every body part has to be connected to a body. It's just that obvious. So being a Christian means that if you're in a church, or being a Christian means that you have to be a part of a church. There's no option. Pretty obvious. You're here, so you should agree with me. <laughs> um, but let's get a little bit more, a little more uh, pointed. Also, being a church is not part-time. It's not part-time. Imagine one of your body parts only working on Wednesdays. That's absurd. That's absurd to say, well, my, I have to wait till Wednesday to write you a letter. That would be insane. That's absurd. And so this is how we should think of a Christian. Um, a Christian can't participate in the ecclesia part-time. That's absurd. Since we're a body part, we're to work every single day. Being a church, uh, being a part of a church is not part-time. There's no biblical category at all for a part-time church member. We're called to be a part of the church always. So first, being a church is not option. It's not an option. Number two, being in a church is never part-time. Number three, being in a church means that you are inextricably connected to Christ. Uh, meaning it, it's impossible to disentangle or separate. If you're part of a body... You are connected to Christ, and that cannot be separated. So you are part of his body. That means you must obey him, and you must strive to be like him. 
Being a part of the church means that you are inextricably connected to Christ. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. I'm going to stop. I could preach a whole sermon. I could preach eight sermons on the church. And so I'm going to stop because the point of the Christ hymn is primarily about Jesus. All right. So he's the head of the body, the church. And so uh, that's the first thing I want you to know about Christ being the Lord over the church. The next thing is this. Put up number B there for me. Uh, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So O'Brien points out when Paul writes that Jesus is the beginning, Paul is saying that Christ, or the one who is the firstborn from the dead, is the founder of a new humanity. He's the founder of a new humanity, this NRK, this new beginning. He's the founder of a new humanity, namely those who are now believers in Christ. So Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So what I want to do is kind of work our way backwards to understand uh, the firstborn from the dead, then understand the beginning. So I'm going to look at the firstborn from the dead, and then we're going to look at him being the beginning. What does it mean for Jesus to be the firstborn from the dead? Does this mean that he was the first person to ever rise from the dead? Is that what it means? No, it doesn't mean that. Because other people rose from the dead before he did. Lazarus rose from the dead, right? John 11. So what does it mean when it says he's the firstborn from the dead? Well, theologically, we know it means, as the, as, as the part of the Christ hymn has already told us, Christ is uh, supreme and primary in all creation. And this section is going to show us that he's also supreme and primary in regard to resurrection. So if he's the fir- beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, it means that he's primary in resurrection. But if he's not first, what does it mean then, therefore, that he's primary in resurrection? Well, if you've been at Remedy any while, you probably know what I'm going to say, but this is what it means. It means that his rising from the dead in comparison to anyone else's rising from the dead is unique. So Lazarus was risen from the dead. Eutychus was risen from the dead. You know, Paul, you know about Eutychus? He fell from the third story window. Eutychus too, if you fell from the third story window. That's what my seminary professor always said. But uh, Paul raised him from the dead, right? But Jesus' rising from the dead is unique compared to anyone else's resurrection because his rising from the dead um, is where we all make sure or we all know that our resurrection comes from. So the, the key difference between Jesus and anybody else is, you know what happened to Lazarus after he rose from the dead? He died again. You know what happened to Eutychus when he rose from the dead? He died again. Everybody who rose from the dead in the Bible besides Jesus died again. Jesus is, is unique because when he rose from the dead, he defeated Satan's sin and death, and he will never die again. He's alive, he has been alive since his resurrection, and he's never going to die again. He he ascended into heaven, and he's in heaven right now, still alive. His resurrection is unique in that he never, ever died again. So when he's the firstborn from the dead, it signifies to us that his resurrection is different from anybody else's. And therefore, his rising from the dead is of most importance. And so it's where all of our hope and our um, assurance of us rising from the dead comes from. Whenever we die, we will one day live again with him forever because of his resurrection. And so he's the firstborn from among the dead because death could not defeat him. So that means he's the beginning. And when we say Jesus of the beginning, all this means now that everything begins with him. Not just all creation, but all things take their beginning in him. 
our lives, when we come to Christ, truly take their beginning in Christ because he's the firstborn from the dead. Because he rose from the dead, if we're in Christ, we actually take our beginning in resurrection because of him. Meaning this, um, because of the resurrection, our lives now have meaning and only find their meaning in the resurrection of Christ. We will live forever with him. We are now everlasting beings because of his resurrection. And so now we have our beginning in Christ. So why did he do this? Why would he provide all of this to his church? Well, it tells us right there in the text. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He did all of this because he is fiercely um, defending his preeminence. He's making sure we understand that he is supreme. He is first place. That he stands out among all others as completely superior. That's what it means for him to be preeminent. He's supreme first place. The NIV should say, in your NIVs it should say so, that in everything he might be first place. He's always first place. He's the preeminent one, the supreme one, because of his um, being the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Paul's wanting to make sure he's cor- correcting this Colossian heresy to make sure they understand that Jesus is not just an emanation from a higher form of God. Instead, he is preeminent. He's first place. He's the highest. He is God, and everything should only be thought of, of taking and finding their, um, their life and their beginnings in Christ, who is preeminent. He is to have first place in everything, in all the church, and in all creation. And even more so, let's get really personal. He's to be preeminent or first place in your heart. Your heart, who's first place? You, your spouse, your, your one-day spouse you want to have, your children. You can be real with yourself. Like, who is it that really finds first place in your heart? That place is only meant for Christ. And if you're a believer in Christ and you're part of the church and you have been resurrected, you hold fast to this promised resurrection because he has been resurrected. And now you have found your beginning in him. He is to be preeminent in your heart. Every day, you should seek to live every day to put on display to this world that Christ is preeminent in your heart. So that's a great prayer to pray every morning. God, help me put on display today that you are preeminent in this heart. Jesus Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent, and that includes our hearts. Next, if you look at verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So there's a lot in this, right? He's going to recite that same phrase in Colossians 2.9. If you look at Colossians 2.9, He says it this way, um, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Again, this is is really specific to the Colossian heresy, right? Wanting to make sure we understand that Jesus really was fully God, really was fully human. Um, But as he says it in 2.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So you can just go ahead and put up, and Jesus is 100% God, therefore kind of lower emanation. He's 100% part of the full Godhead. 
And so because of that, he's completely righteous. If he's a lower emanation, he's not righteous, he's not a, good, he's not a perfect sacrifice, we're all going to hell. I mean, that's just that's the way it is, unless he is God. So as Paul uh, in here states this in, in Colossians 1, 19, and later restates it in Colossians 2, 19, he's wanting us to understand that Jesus was, is 100% God while he lived on earth and while he's in heaven now. And therefore, he is and always has been and always will be completely righteous, rejecting the Colossian heresy of matter being inherently evil. Therefore, Jesus uh, not being able to be fully human and then maybe not even being able to be all the fullness of God dwelling bodily. And so there were some that would claim that Jesus was not God or that he became God later or that all the fullness could not dwell in him bodily. And of course, all these things are completely not true uh, because he has to be 100% God, 100% man, the God man in order to be completely righteous and be the perfect sacrifice to uh, go to the cross to appease and absorb the full wrath of God the Father for us on our behalf. So we can trust this. We can trust that we are seen by the Father as, if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, you can trust that you are seen by the Father as completely righteous before him because Jesus Christ died on the cross for us as a perfect sacrifice. So when God deals with us as his children now, it's no longer through the lens of condemnation or punishment because all of that was put on Christ for us because he is the perfect righteous sacrifice. And now what we know is mercy. All we know now is forgiveness. It says, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell um, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. When, When we see this All the fullness. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Um, One commentator zeroes in on this all the fullness, this pleroma in in Greek. And he says this. This is is quite interesting. Um, On the one hand, in relation to deity, he is the visible image of the invisible God. He is not only the chief manifestation of the divine nature. He exhausts the Godhead manifested. He's not only the chief manifest, manifestation of the divine nature, he exhausts the Godhead manifested. In him resides the totality of the divine powers and attributes. For in this totality, Gnostic teachers um, had a technical term, the pleroma or plenary. In contrast to their doctrine, Paul asserts and repeats the assertion that the pleroma or all the fullness of God abides absolutely and wholly in Christ as the word of God. The entire light is concentrated within him. This means that there's absolutely no lack of deity in God or in Christ at all. All of God that is God is fully in Christ completely. That's pretty amazing. Where Calvin would say this. So therefore, we must draw all the fullness of Christ, everything good that we desire for our salvation... Because search is the termination of God, not to communicate himself or his gifts to men otherwise than by his son. And so because he's fully God, everything about our salvation has been given to us in Christ who is fully God. Therefore, our salvation is absolutely sure because it comes from, God, from Christ who is 100% God. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce says it, uh, all the attributes and activities of God, his spirit, his word, his wisdom, and his glory are disclosed to us in Christ. All of his attributes and all of his activities, his spirit, his word, 
his wisdom, and his glory. So everything that we can know about God has been made manifest to us, specifically in the person, the Word, capital W, Christ. All of his activities and attributes. Now, this doesn't mean that we can know him fully because he hasn't given us everything, but everything that we can know, we can know in Christ. That's pretty astonishing. And so we should desire to continually live a life that worships and glorifies him because he is the complete righteous one. Now, thus far, we've seen things about him. And this last one's going to, uh, going to help us understand more about him as the reconciler. So let's go back to verse 18 that brings us into 20 so we can feel the full weight of what he's talking about when reconciliation comes up in verse 20. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be through him. So all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. So the last attribute of Jesus being the Lord over God's church is that Jesus is the reconciler. He's the reconciler. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, um, this is just hermeneutics 101, uh, Bible study 101, uh, understanding a passage 101. Uh, you You don't create a theology out of one verse. You look at the totality of Scripture, and you let all clearer texts inform difficult texts so that you make sure you are saying correct things about God theologically, right? So you could zoom in on this one verse and say, God has therefore reconciled all of heaven and earth in Christ. So universalism, the doctrine that everybody saved, must be true. Because right here it says it. Um, he was pleased to deal through him to reconcile to himself all things. So everybody goes to heaven. That would be the wrong way to understand this text. Uh, that would be the wrong way to understand this text. Uh, this, this is a unique text in that it's the Christ hymn, and he's talking in high-level things about Christ. And so uh, Paul even makes sure in that last little phrase that we understand how reconciliation happens when he says, by making peace by the blood of his cross. And so even that little last phrase helps us understand how to understand this. So we look at this, and then we look, spread that idea across all of the New Testament to understand completely what Paul is wanting to make sure he communicates to us, which is peace can be made, reconciliation can be made by man through God, specifically through Christ. And when we look at all of the Bible, we obviously see that's through repentance and faith. You know, when we have been given the gift of faith and we put our trust in him, we repent of our our sin and he reconciles us to him. So we don't take this text to say universalism must be true. But we do take this text to say that God is on a cosmic mission to reconcile all of creation. So there is a shalom, a peace that's going to happen for all of creation in that all people will be one day reconciled to God, will be made whole with God um, because of Christ. But also, as we see in Romans 8, all of creation is aching and groaning. If you've been there, you know what it's like because he tells us in Romans 8, if you've been in that room where a woman's about to give birth, you know, you've been in that room 
Uh, she's aching and she's groaning and she's wanting to give birth to this child because of the pain that she's in. And, and Romans 8 talks about creation in the same way. Creation, like a woman in childbirth, is aching and groaning, desiring to give birth to a new creation. And in Christ, and it's only made possible, this deep shalom that's being offered to all creation will one day happen where we will all not be in this, you know, this this fallen creation anymore. But instead, one day we'll be with him forever and sin will no no longer be around us. So in Christ, he reconciles individuals through faith, but he's also reconciling all of creation to one day be with him. Have perfect relationship like Adam and Eve had before they fell. Um, Started in a garden, it'll one day end in a city in Zion that we will all... uh, be reconciled to him. So that's when you see this reconciling to himself all things in earth and in heaven. All creation will one day be reconciled because of Christ. Uh, but it doesn't mean universalism. But here we are. Jesus is the reconciler. The activity of uh, reconciliation specifically will be preached next week. So if you look at verse 21 through 23, that's next week's sermon. Uh, and so the activity of that reconcili- reconciliation that's being talked about here is the reconciler and how it specifically applies to us. I'm going to preach that next week. But for this sermon, we're just going to focus on Jesus the reconciler, not necessarily us as being reconciled. That's next week. Um, so Calvin says, when he's talking about Jesus the reconciler, he says, this wonderful commendation of Christ is what joins us to God. Our happiness consists and are cleaving to God, and that on the other hand, there's nothing more miserable than to be alienated from him. Do you believe that? When I read that, I stopped and I thought, I wonder if every Christian really believes that, that there is nothing more miserable than to be alienated from him. Because you can look at those that don't know Christ, and they can seemingly put on the front like they're so happy and we, and we can think to ourselves, oh, they seem so happy, and I have to follow Jesus sometimes. And, man, it's really hard and really difficult. And he, he, he tells me to count the cost, and I have to cling to him, and I have to put off sin, and I have to not participate in the fun sin. So you can start believing, man, following Christ is so hard. They seem to be having the fun. And Calvin brings it back to us, right? And he says, our happiness solely consists in cleaving to God. And on the other hand... Nothing's more miserable than to be alienated from God. And then I remember, and maybe you got saved late, or you can just remember what it was like to walk in darkness, that old life, and you're like, oh, yeah, that was terrible. <laughs> that was miserable. Oh, the depths and the joys that I have to know Christ. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is true, Calvin. Garland says it this way, Christ's majesty is rooted in God's love, shown in the earthly historical reality of the cross. Christ's majesty is rooted in his love. And so here when we see him as reconciler, he's the one that brings us back to God the Father. He's the one that reconciles us to him. We were once enemies of God, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, among tons of other places. It says, and we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And then verse 4, but God. 
but God. And then he reconciles us through Christ. But God, who's rich in mercy, has sent his son to die for us. But that was our condition. And Christ reconciles us anyway by receiving our condemnation for us. Now, Paul uses in this Christ hymn at the very end two shocking words when speaking about our reconciliation. They stand out in the Christ hymn as pretty shocking. Blood and cross. Blood and cross. He uses these two shocking words to speak about reconciliation because he's wanting to express to us cost and violence. Cost and violence. There was great cost, inexpressible cost for our being reconciled. Namely, the death of God's own son, Jesus. That's incalculable. But it's also violent. His death was violent. The cross was meant to humiliate him and shame him, helping us understand that should have been ours. And his work on the cross was the atoning sacrifice necessary so that we can have reconciliation with God. And so he gets all the glory for being the reconciler. David Garland says, The cross establishes a new relationship between God and humans, which overcomes this rupture created by sin, that we're now sinners because of the cross. Estrangement from God had happened. Estrangement from other humans. Estrangement from created things. And now that peace, that shalom, can only be found in his body on the cross. To be reconciled to God is supremely our highest joy. There is no higher joy in all of life than being reconciled to the person that actually created you. And so if you're an unbeliever, pray that that happens this morning. Pray that he quickens your heart this morning and that you see in uh, who Christ is and what he's done for you on the cross and you trust him this morning. And if you are a believer, pray continually that your highest joy would be in that truth. Calvin writes about the blood of the cross. He says this. He calls it the blood of the cross inasmuch as it was the pledge and the price, the pledge and the price of the making up of our peace with God. He's pledging to us peace with God and he's showing us the price of our peace with God because it was poured out on Jesus on the cross. For it was necessary that the Son of God should be the um, expect, I can't even pronounce this, expiatory victim, the, the wrath-absorbing, sin-sacrificing victim, to endure the punishment of sin so that in him we, not, we might now become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The blood of the cross, therefore, means the blood of the sacrifice which was offered up on the cross for the appeasing anger of God. And God did have a holy, righteous anger for our sin. But now we know none of that. Christ took it all for us who are in Christ. So he is the reconciler. Now last week, I closed by uh, quoting um, Garland uh, where he says that the Christ hymn, one of the main goals of the Christ hymn is to try to help us learn the language of adoration. I want to close this week by quoting John Owen. John Owen's a Puritan back in the 1700s, and he's uh, discussing the Christ hymn, and this is what he says. Sometimes he's hard to understand, but I know y'all can follow. This is what he says. The revelation or the revealing of made 
The revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, more glorious, more filled with rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation and the just comprehension of it, if attainable, can contain or afford. Without this knowledge, the mind of man, however priding itself in other inventions and discoveries, is wrapped up in darkness and in confusion. Meaning, knowing Christ, there's nothing better. This, therefore, deserves our severest of thoughts. Here's where he's pushing us. He's saying, I'm not telling you, therefore, to go do something. The application of the Christ hymn isn't necessarily, so go be better. It's not that. It's learn for your mind to think high, high, lofty, as he said, severest of thoughts or highest thoughts about who Christ is. And let your mind go there and dwell there and just glory in and find yourself in awe of who Christ is. This, therefore, deserves our severest of thoughts, the best of our meditations, our utmost diligence in them. For if our future blessedness shall consist in living where Christ is and beholding of his glory. Think about that. One day you'll literally be in front of him and you'll get to see him and your mind will be even more expanded to just how glorious it is. And you will look, if that's our future, then what better preparation can there be for it than a constant previous contemplation of that glory as revealed in the gospel? What better work is there to do now than to continually try to contemplate the glory of God now? That's what he's saying. Revealed to us in the gospel that by a view of it, we may be then therefore gradually transformed into that same glory. So what he's saying is um, contemplating and picturing a grand view of the glory of God is not just an endless exercise of trying to manipulate your mind to think about how glorious it is. So when you get there, you can say, oh, this is what I thought it would be like. That's not the point. It is a point. But it's not the point. The point is, if you do that now, as 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 promises, we actually are going to be changed from one degree into his glory right now. The more we contemplate Christ now, it's not just this great future glory that we'll get to behold and we're kind of picturing it. But we're literally being transformed from one degree to glory right now. That's what promise. Second. Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 promises. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this Christ hymn. And I mean, there's, there's so much more that I could say for hours and hours and hours. And I still wouldn't even come close to doing it glory, doing it just. And so uh, I just have to accept that. We just have to accept that. that this, is, uh, this is the best that I could do, and this is what language provides for me. But I pray, Lord, for all of us that this wouldn't be the end of the Christ hymn for us, but only the beginning. That for the rest of our life, we would continually meditate on and think on the riches and the depths of the glories of Christ being expressed to us in the Christ hymn. And that it would never be, uh, we'd never be done with it, but instead we'd have an endless meditation on it. And so that it's not just that one day that means we'll have a great picture of what you'll be like in heaven. But because of meditating on it, we'll literally be transformed from one degree of glory uh, into Christ's likeness now. And being made available so kind, you're so good.
Thank you for the cross. Thank you for reconciliation being made available to us in Christ. And Lord, I pray that uh, you will strengthen your church and that we would always look to you as the head and the source. Our only Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.